Listener Production. A quick disclaimer before we get started. Although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. All the content and information discussed in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Remember, always consult your doctor before making any decisions about your health. Ever had the sensation that your uterus moonlights as Edward Scissorhands during your period? Ever woken up in the middle of the night feeling like you've been in a head-on collision with a Mack truck? And don't get me started on those cramps. This is excruciating. Imagine experiencing the worst pain you've ever experienced every single day. That's the reality for women living with endometriosis. Shockingly, it takes six years for a woman with endo to get a diagnosis, according to one Monash University study. It's taking forever. Starving. As women, we're told that pain, especially period pain, comes with the territory of having a uterus. The problem is, when we lump all pain together as period pain, we miss serious conditions like endometriosis. And endo isn't the only cause of pelvic pain either. Please, make it go away. Despite the recent surge in media attention, endometriosis isn't, in fact, new. It was discovered as early as 1690 by a German physician named Daniel Schroen observing peritoneal ulcers that tended to form lesions. In essence, that's what endometriosis is. By 1922, doctors were talking about chocolate cysts because of the brown, bumpy appearance of the endometrial tissue growing where it doesn't belong, like a dessert buffet crashing the party in the wrong room. You're not supposed to be here. But endometriosis likely existed long before we had the evidence to support it. 13th century manuscripts show images of women doubling over in pain. Experts believe the imagery represents women suffering from what's called strangulation or suffocation of the womb. Just as the 20th century had a habit of dubbing endometriosis the career woman's disease, Hippocrates suggested that delaying motherhood could trigger disorders of the uterus with painful menstruation, cited as one such outcome. From this point on, we are sophisticated, educated, successful career women. So what is pain, really? Pain is like your body's overly dramatic alarm system. When you touch a hot plate, special nerve cells called nociceptors go into full-on panic mode, sending signals to your brain like... God damn it! Move your ass, honey. However, it doesn't stop there. The brain also categorizes your pain, deciding if it's a dull, aching, sharp or stabbing, a true connoisseur of suffering, if you will. Here's the kicker. Not all pain is visible, and not all pain has a magic cure. Take endometriosis, for example. It's now thought that a vast majority of women diagnosed with female hysteria in the 1800s and 1900s, a blanket diagnosis for unexplained illness of the female persuasion, were actually struggling with endometriosis. If that isn't gaslighting, I don't know what is. You see, endometriosis triggers an inflammatory response. The inflammatory cells surrounding the lesions produce cytokines and other pain-inducing proteins. When in check, cytokines are vital for regular cell functioning. But when they overstay their welcome, they turn into silent assassins, party-crashing the immune system. I'm going to fuck you up real bad. Nerves go haywire and suddenly you're hypersensitive to every little stimulus. 
You can't even see the lesions without laparoscopy, a type of keyhole surgery that involves the insertion of a stick-like viewing instrument inserted through the belly. And different people experience pain differently. Pain is really complex. So popping pain pills isn't always an effective solution. So when there's a rage in your pelvis, is it always endometriosis? And can anything be done to relieve pelvic pain? Hi, I'm Dr. Sneh Wadwani, women's health GP and advocate. And this is everything from A to V, the podcast separating the fact from the fiction when it comes to women's health. Here, we'll answer some of the most common questions I get asked by women just like you, and we'll debunk a few myths along the way too. But we were discussing matters of the vagina, Bruce, not the heart. In today's episode, we chat to the incredible Dr. Susan Evans, gynaecologist, researcher, educator and advocate. She's been working in this space for over 20 years, and she'll be talking to us about endometriosis, pelvic pain and everything related. So, Susan, I am so thrilled to have you here on the podcast today. So we're going to talk about pelvic pain today. And of course, endometriosis, yes, is a big part of that conversation. But it's not the only cause of pain in the pelvic region, is it? Not at all. I think it's more like pelvic pain has many different aspects to it. And a lot of the people with pelvic pain will also have endometriosis. So it's not one or the other. It's like... For most people, it's going to be pelvic pain, often with endometriosis, but not necessarily. And something I found really interesting, and I've seen tons of these videos now, are these videos of men trying period pain stimulators. Have you seen those, Susan? I have. In fact, I've tried one, Snow, <laughs> because, because a close friend of mine is Eugenie Lee, the artist, and she developed an experience where a man can wear a belt and induce their pelvic pain. So I have tried it. And is it pretty close, the simulation, do you think? It's pretty painful. I guess I'm not. you never know what another yeah, person's pain is like, yeah. but I can't say I liked it very much <laughs> at all. Well, look, lo and behold, when we gave these to men... They get to the second or third level and they have to give up, right? Their pain tolerance is nowhere near what what a women's pain tolerance is. But for a long time, pain has been considered something that just comes with the territory of having a uterus and having periods. When is it not acceptable? When, When should someone be asking for help? That's always a tricky question, isn't it? Because most girls and women will have some degree of pain with a period, and that's not necessarily abnormal. But I think if it gets distressing, if it stops them doing the things they want to do in their life, if they're missing school or work often with those problems, if they have a mix of pains, if they're distressed by pain, it is not normal and it is definitely something that can be improved and deserves the attention of a health practitioner. And I think that's one of the challenges, isn't it? You know, when patients come to me, certainly, or when they go and see other doctors, you know, they are often pigeonholed because the, the pain can't be seen. And, and that's one of the things we want to debunk here, isn't it? That just because it's not visible doesn't mean it's not important and doesn't mean that it's not there. And I think that can be a real barrier to women in terms of their accessing healthcare because they're worried about how that might be perceived. Yes, I totally agree. This concept that pain must be seen or she's crazy is just holding back this area 
dreadfully. And it's not necessarily the way in other areas of pain. If someone has a migraine, everyone accepts that a migraine is really painful, but nobody expects to see lesions or uh, abnormalities on a brain scan. They just actually accept, wow, migraine, that's really painful. But when it's women's pelvic pain, it's like unless there's something to see when someone's done a scan or done surgery called laparoscopy to have a look, it's like, well, it's not real. She can feel embarrassed, miserable, shamed, etc. And it's considered that it's not real and not worth considering. Mm. And so when we talk about endometriosis, let's let's break that down a little bit. What What actually do we mean? So when we say endometriosis. From a gynecologist's perspective, that means things called lesions that you see in the pelvis if you put a telescope inside and have a look around. And those lesions are tissue that's like the lining of the uterus, not exactly the same, but like the lining of the uterus outside of the uterus in the pelvic cavity. And if you think about the pain that might be associated with that, from a gynecologist's perspective, they mean pain from lesions or pain from the uterus. But if you look at it from the woman's perspective, when she thinks about pelvic pain or period pain, she's talking about all the symptoms that she experiences during that period time. So that could be headaches, it could be muscle spasm, it could be bowel pain, it could be feeling anxious or low mood or not sleeping well or having chronic feelings of being unwell. It's everything that happens to her during period time. So once again, we get back to the fact that there's these, the pain experience, which can be whole body wide, and there's what you see if you look inside with a, a laparoscope. And that's the interesting thing, isn't it? Firstly, pelvic pain can occur without endometriosis. Indeed. And equally, endometriosis, the severity that you might see on a laparoscope, doesn't necessarily correlate to the symptoms that a patient or a, a woman might be feeling. Absolutely. So if you look at the photograph of taken of what has been found down a laparoscope, you might see severe endometriosis with large areas affected, or you might see small areas affected, or you might see a normal looking pelvis. But you can't look at that and tell someone what that person's pain is. So that correlation between the severity of the lesions and the severity of the pain isn't actually there. Now, that doesn't mean that endometriosis isn't important. It's very important. But we get back to there's the pain and there's the lesions and they're commonly associated, but they don't have to be. And so let's talk a bit then about pelvic pain when it's not endometriosis. What's, what's happening in, in the pelvis, in the body? You know, you talked a bit about those premenstrual kind of symptoms, you know, and they can be very varied. It's not just pain in the pelvis, whether there's endometriosis or not. It can be a whole heap of other things like headache, like fatigue, like exhaustion. Why is that happening? In similar ways to other types of pain, if you think about what pain actually is, it's really excessive activation of a neuroimmune system. And that sounds like a big word, but it really means the way, way our immune system interacts with our central nervous system. When there's excessive activation of our central nervous system, we don't feel well. And that can happen in many different ways. So 
if you have an illness like a viral illness or or some sort of other infection, your body makes cytokines, which are chemicals that travel around your body, go to your central nervous system and make you feel sick. And that's one type of inflammation and cytokine production in the body. But some people have a sort of not an acute thing of I'm actually really sick now, but I'll get better, but a lower grade of excess neuroimmune inflammation happening all the time. And their central nervous system becomes sensitized. They make a higher level of those cytokines all the time. And that translates into illness and chronic pain. And so that's really flipping the concept of period pain or pelvic pain on its head, really, isn't it? Because the thing about that is we've often thought if someone's got period pain or or pelvic pain associated with their cycle, that they should really just take some painkillers and move on or just put up with it. That's what society kind of expects us to do as women. But the reality is there's a bit of a risk here in that if we don't manage that pain and manage those symptoms, the nervous system, as you say, can become hypersensitive over time. Absolutely. Actually, a study that came out a couple of years ago showed that the women who earlier in life had bad period pain over their lifetime were more likely to develop more widespread pain called fibromyalgia than other women. And if they had that pain managed well early in their life, then they had a lower chance of developing fibromyalgia, that overall pain type problem as they got older. So the management of pain in early life during the teens is 100% important. It's the most important thing we can do for our young people. Mm. And so let's go back to endometriosis a little bit. So as you said, it's this endometrial-like tissue that gets deposited outside of the uterus. So we talked a bit about, you know, yes, we need to manage pain, but what happens if we don't fix this endometriosis or do we need to fix it? Well, that differs depending on the person affected and how they respond to different treatments. Remember that endometriosis is a neuroimmune inflammatory condition itself. So we're not saying one or the other, because if you've got endometriosis lesions, firstly, they probably developed in part because your system allowed them to develop because of the inflammatory background that medicine really hasn't quite got its mind around as to what puts you at risk. So you've got all these neuroinflammatory processes happening if you've got lesions. There are a few different ways of calming down the inflammation involved in an endometriosis lesion. So yes, you can remove those lesions. That really means cut them out at a laparoscopy. You can certainly do that. But some people, if they're on the right hormonal management that suppresses their bleeding, suppresses the inflammation, then actually they can keep any endometriosis lesions less active and they might not need surgery or they might not need as much surgery all the time to actually manage those lesions. So I think it gets down to managing the problem. Now, there are some people, a smaller percentage, that have really severe endometriosis lesions, large areas called endometriomas in their ovaries, or large areas in some of the other parts of the pelvis. Now, that's a very challenging condition that requires expert surgeons. But the majority of people with endometriosis do not have major lesions. They might have some lesions. And for many of those, sometimes suppression of their hormones is enough 
to not remove the lesions but to keep them quiet. And what are the effects if we don't treat endometriosis at all, whether with hormones or with uh, surgery? What, what are the consequences that a woman might face in that space? Yes, it really does depend on how severe the lesions are. So if it is severe endometriosis, then you can actually have a lot of the pelvic organs sticking together, that's called adhesions, and those areas of endometriosis can grow. If it's the mild endometriosis, then not necessarily too much always happens. So we don't have enough information to fully answer that question at the moment. And one of the common things that women experience when they're having sort of pelvic pain and and suspected endometriosis is that there's a long delay to diagnosis, isn't there? Why do you think that is, Susan? I think when we say a long delay to diagnosis, we mean to diagnosis of the lesions and the condition. And that has really meant long delay to laparoscopy. If you actually ask those people what their first symptoms were, their first symptoms were pain. I and particularly concerned about the delay people experience between the beginning of their pain and management of their pain. So I think that's the most important thing, the pain management, so they don't become so unwell and get their nervous system more sensitised, to me, is the biggest issue. As far as the diagnosis of endometriosis lesions go, the delay there, if you can actually manage the symptoms you don't necessarily have to rush in to looking for a diagnosis. On another track, though, if you're talking about people going with significant symptoms that aren't getting relief from the treatments that they've been offered, then that delay to surgery to actually make the diagnosis remove the lesions is a big problem. And this gets down to access and it also gets down to the particular views of that person themselves, their family, their community and their health practitioner and the health system within which they live. And you talked about endometriosis being this neuroimmune inflammatory response. It probably just is a bit useful here to talk about what does the endometrial tissue actually do and when it's outside of the place it's meant to be, what's the consequence of that? Why does it do what it does? Why does it cause pain? Well, the lesions are quite active and they induce inflammation around them, which is why there can be some scarring and fibrosis around the lesions. But the other thing an endometriosis lesion does to encourage its own growth is it makes the body build new blood vessels to it. That's called angiogenesis, which means making new blood vessels. And that gives more nurture to the lesion and sustains it. It also encourages the growth of nerves into the lesion. So we've got a lesion that builds its own blood supply, builds its own nerve supply and creates fibrosis around it. That is quite, I think that's quite eye-opening for very many people, (laughs) isn't it? Um, That you've Mm. got this kind of self-perpetuating lesion that that is, is creating the right environment for itself to grow. And so I guess the other thing is, you know, historically, certainly in my training, there has been this 
you know, concept of you can't make a diagnosis of endometriosis until you've had a laparoscopy. It is called the gold standard in terms mm. of diagnosis. But we all know that science has moved forward now, right? And we acknowledge that pelvic pain syndrome or pelvic pain in its own alongside endometriosis are all conditions that can be diagnosed without a laparoscopy. Yes. So larger areas of endometriosis can now be found by really high quality ultrasound. Now the thinner, smaller areas can't, but they're the ones that potentially might have potential to be managed by keeping them quiet, where hormonal therapy and suppression of periods alone might be sufficient. I guess with all of this, it depends on the individual. One of the things I do think is really important is that people with pain do not have to wait for a laparoscopy to start feeling better and to start actually getting outcomes for their pain. There's a lot you can do before you have a laparoscopy. And not only does that mean getting on to managing the pain straight away, but it also means recovering better from the laparoscopy and getting a better outcome. For anyone who's looking for it, on the Pelvic Pain Foundation website, we have a page called Tips and Tricks for recovering well from laparoscopy that takes a woman from three months before her surgery right through all the way how to prepare, what questions to ask, what to do when she goes home. And it actually makes it so much easier to recover well and get the best outcome from a laparoscopy if she's planning one. And that's, I guess, the other thing, isn't it, Susan? People with pelvic pain, or suspected endometriosis, because we I, I, certainly in my practice, there's a lot of women now who've Googled their symptoms. They think that might be what's going on. They may not necessarily need a laparoscopy. The diagnosis can be suspected. We can talk about pelvic pain and we can still treat them without needing to go down that laparoscopy route. We can indeed. And one group where that's particularly important are people who've already had a laparoscopy or two and they know they've had endometriosis and they know that that's actually been treated, often treated quite well, and yet they've still got pain. So the pains that can be seen have actually been treated. The pains that can't be seen are the ones they're left with. One of the commonest types of pain that people experience is a sudden or stabbing pain on one side or both sides of the pelvis that makes them want to bend forward, that maybe goes into their back, involves their hip, maybe down the front of their leg, that's worse with some sorts of movements and they like to curl up in a ball and they love their heat pack. Well, that particular pain is usually pain and spasm in a muscle on the sides of the pelvis called obturator internus. Now, you don't see that at laparoscopy, but that's what that pain is. And so if that isn't recognised, people will be turning up to emergency departments, they'll be having more surgery for a pain that is actually due to a muscle spasm. When women have a mix of pain, I say, what's your worst pain? You've got a lot of different pains happening. What's your worst pain? And commonly, it's that sudden stabbing pain, which is their worst pain. And that is something that having surgery is not going to give lasting benefit for. So let's talk a bit about treatment then, Susan. We've sort of touched on a bit, you know, there is the surgical option, but there's also hormonal options. And when we think about things like the obturator internus and, and the, you know, muscular type pains as well, there's treatment for that too. So there's lots of different ways in which we can manage this pain. So how 
might a patient sitting out there, a woman sitting out there with symptoms, let's present to her that range. What does that look like? So I think the first thing is to understand your own pains and what's involved. One of the easiest and simplest ways is divided up into three parts. There's the pains associated with pelvic organs. There's the pains associated with the secondary muscle spasm on the inside of the pelvis. And then there's the pains and symptoms associated with the central nervous system. Now, for many of these people, there'll also be that overlay of endometriosis lesions. And for many of these people, there'll also be the overlay of life stresses Life is difficult when you have pelvic pain and endometriosis. And if there's been early life adverse effects, uh, a difficult life, that adds another overlay. But if we think of the three main areas, pelvic organs, plus or minus endo, muscle pain or central nervous system pain, then it's easier to understand what's happening. The first thing is to think about the pelvic organs. Think about the first problem with pain that you had. It may well have been period pain, but it could have been from your bowels or bladder as a young child. And if you think about what happened first, you'll often learn about the driver of the pain that you really need to manage well. So if it was periods that started the problem, then suppressing those periods is going to take away that main driver and help everything else be a bit easier to manage. It could also be that you've got a bowel problem as well, like constipation or food intolerances or a sort of a colitis of some kind. And for some people, a significant pelvic driver will be their bladder. Maybe they've always been someone who had trouble with their bladder. So these are the pelvic organ areas. Now for the secondary muscle pain, then there's a lot of things you can do. One of them is that's important is to keep moving. Muscles like to move. A pelvic physiotherapist that understands how to downtrain is useful. And there's, I think, the understanding of how you hold your body so it's not tight all the time is valuable. Of course, for the most severe ones, there can be Botox injections, which is not commonly available. But that has to be something in the context of the big picture, not a first-line treatment. If we're talking about the central nervous system, these are the things that make you feel bad, like fatigue, poor sleep, anxiety, low mood, nausea, dizzy, sweaty, all those sorts of things that make you feel so bad and the headaches. That is generated from the central nervous system. And there's lots of things you can do. Keeping your mind busy, some medications like a small dose of amitriptyline, using pain psychology to retrain your brain, and particularly, if you possibly can, staying away from regular opioid medications, which over time worsen the pain sensitization. I think that's a really useful thing to debunk there, uh, Susan. These strong painkillers that are opiates often can actually make the pain worse in the long term, right? And there's a real role here for some of those alternative allied type therapies around, like you said, keeping moving, physiotherapy, looking after your mind and body as a whole that have significant benefits. And those are evidence-based benefits, right? They are evidence-based. And one of the big ones I think that is showing to be more and more important is having a good night's sleep. Because if you have a bad night's sleep, you have more pain the next day. And that is something that unfortunately many of our teens are having, bad night's sleep. And getting back to those strong painkillers, it's really difficult. 
for the first couple of days after a laparoscopy, anyone is going to need those medications, but staying on them for even more than a few days over time can worsen that central pain sensitization, which makes life so difficult. So we need more tools in the toolbox for this problem. And it's under-researched, under-recognised and under-managed everywhere. And I, and I think when we talk about the therapies alternative to surgery, one of the key players in that space is hormone therapy, right? And it's one yes. of the things that lots of women are scared of. You know, they, they worry about their weight, they worry about their mood, they worry about all sorts of things in that space. Hormones seem to have become, in some spaces, not the menopause, but in everyone else, but this kind of evil thing that people don't want to go near. But actually, hormone therapy in, in endometriosis can be really helpful, can't it? And equally with pelvic pain without endometriosis, if it is related to periods, managing that cycle with hormones can be really useful. Absolutely. I totally sympathise with people that are a little hesitant about taking hormones. I can understand that they'd really like to have their natural hormones and not to need to take anything. That's a very natural approach. The difficulty is that they've got a significant medical condition for which we don't have enough options. And if you look back and your first major pain was periods or periods are a big driver for your pain, then it's hard to manage pain unless you can stop the thing that month after month is driving those muscles to be tighter and more painful and your central nervous system to be more sensitised. So then it's a question of what we can do for the most benefit and the least risk. Now, there's a couple of ways of approaching that. Commonly, we've used the contraceptive pill, which has two hormones in it to suppress periods. One of those hormones is estrogen and one of them is progestogen. Actually, probably from a pain suppression perspective, progestogen-only medications are more effective. Really, the thing that suits you best with as little bleeding as possible and suits you your well-being best is the one to go for. But if the pill itself hasn't helped, then a continuous progestogen, and there's a couple of them out there, so one of them is Denagest and one of them's Norethisterone, those continuously, if they can stop the bleeding, can give your body a bit of a chance to recover and give you that opportunity to do more and manage other aspects of your pain as well. If you're really looking for the lowest hormone dose that you can possibly have, then putting a Mirena intrauterine device in the uterus is the lowest systemic hormone dose, which is a great advantage. The difficulty is that if you put one of those devices in somebody who's got lots of symptoms and lots of muscle spasm and lots of sensitization, then it can be really difficult for them and they can have much more pain. So it's much better done after you've already managed the other aspects of their pain and then it goes much more smoothly. So there's so much out there, isn't there, Susan? And I think endometriosis, pelvic pain have long been regarded these conditions that we can't really do much for. And whilst it's true that we don't have enough treatments, 
there are plenty of options still out there for women and emerging research in this space. So what are the right questions for a woman to ask her doctor if she thinks she has endo or she has, um, you know, sort of that more intrusive pelvic pain that isn't just a normal period pain? Because that's really opening the door to investigating, exploring and accessing some of these treatments? Mm. Yes, so they're really different questions depending on whether she's concerned if she has endometriosis lesions or whether she's concerned about the pain. The lesions get the attention, but the pain is the thing that interrupts her life. So they're all important. If it's endometriosis lesions, maybe you're someone who's never had laparoscopy and this is your first time thinking about it. If it's pain on more than a few days, If it's pain that isn't easily settled by going on the pill or taking an ibuprofen or something like that, that's a bit of a leader as well. If you've got a mix of different pains, you might have endometriosis. It's, It's more common. If you've got people in your family with endometriosis, we know about half the risk is genetic from your family and half is other things. So if you've got a family history, you've got pain for more than a few days, you've got pain that doesn't respond to normal treatments, then you might have endometriosis. But that doesn't mean you have to rush into a laparoscopy. It means you need assistance with a health practitioner that you feel comfortable with who's going to look at the big picture. If you've got those stabbing pains that I described before, then think muscles and None of these are saying you haven't got endometriosis, but they're saying the muscles are a big picture of your pain. And then the last thing is to think, how many days a month do I have pain of any kind? And how many days a month am I completely well, like all my friends? So maybe if you've got pain on, let's say, uh, five days a month and the rest of the time you're absolutely fine then your pain is more likely to be endometriosis lesions and uterus. If you've got pain on most days a month, then you have central nervous system changes. That's the definition. Pain on most days for more than three to six months. So it will be a bigger picture to look at than just do I have endometriosis lesions? Mm, and I think a key component in, the, in this is going to the right doctor, right? It is. Because there are doctors who aren't as familiar with this and hopefully they can refer you on. But if you're feeling unheard as women, it's really important that you keep asking those questions and keep asking to see someone else who will listen and will understand. Absolutely. And you need to also think, what are the skill sets of the health practitioner I'm going to? So a gynecologist is probably great at diagnosing and removing your endometriosis lesions and sometimes managing your hormones but that doesn't mean they are the right person to manage all the aspects of your pain. A general practitioner who's interested in this area and who has the network to join you up with the other skills you need and to support you over time is really the centre of your care. Thanks for the big GP push there, Susan. I love it. I'd love to just take a moment to talk about innovation and research in the endopelvic pain space, because there are things happening, aren't there? Some exciting things happening. Can you share a bit about that? Well, this is the excitement in my life, Snay. I, I mean, know! <laughs> it's a bit exciting in my life. <laughs> well, you know, that connection between the uterus and the brain, that's where I'm working 
we hear so much about the gut-brain axis and that's all very nice and very important and don't we know that what we eat is important to how we feel but does any woman out there think that her uterus talks to her brain too? Everyone I speak to says, hell of yes, course. <laughs> hell yes, hell yes, my uterus talks to my brain. And that should be no surprise. And when you think of it that way, should it be any surprise that some of these pain conditions are more common in women than men? Women are hormonally different. They have a uterus. They have periods. There's a lot that gives extra immune stimulus to a woman's central nervous system. So modulating the link between the uterus and the brain, that means working out if people have excess activation of that uterus-brain axis and learning how to turn it down so they have less symptoms. That's the space that I'm researching at the moment and it's got so much potential to make a difference to women in the world. Thank you, Susan, and thank you for all the work you're doing. This was an incredible session, and I hope it's empowered so many women out there to go and get the help that they need and not to just put up and shut up. So thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Snay. It's a pleasure. So there you go. There's lots of reasons women experience pain in the pelvic region, and there are many therapies to help reduce that pain. Endometriosis is a real, serious condition, so there's nothing wrong with seeking a second opinion if you don't feel like your concerns have been taken seriously. Pain is not something we have to put up with, and it's a shame the burden falls to us to fix it, but arming yourself with the right knowledge to navigate these conversations with your health professional will get you one step closer to living the life you deserve. Be sure to come back next week for more empowering facts on women's health. This podcast is a listener production hosted by me, Sneh Wadwani. Producer is Kelsey Menzies. Executive producer is Todd Stevens with sound design by Kelly Falston. Listener.